Good evening. Um, I thought this evening we would look at the book of Revelation. Um, but before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening for um, allowing us this opportunity to open your word together. We thank you for uh, your word. It is inspired, it's uh, infallible, and we can rely on it always. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would use uh, your word uh, tonight to speak into our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're at the end of another year. We're thinking about uh, the Christmas time and the Christmas season. And um, tonight's Bible study isn't um, going to focus on uh, the events of Christ's birth, but we will look, we'll consider uh, something about Christmas that uh, sometimes gets missed, uh, where uh, year by year we have Christmas, Christmas comes, Christmas goes. Um, and um, I was talking to a friend recently who um, always adds another bauble to the tree uh, every year. And so you can imagine uh, if they're uh, about 40 years old, they have about 40 baubles on the tree. And, um, and every time uh, Christmas time comes around again, um, uh, I started thinking about uh, where we are in the context of um, our lives. Uh, Christmas is a good time for reflection. Christmas is a good time um, to think about the year just past and the year coming forward. Um, a French music composer once said that time is a great teacher but unfortunately it kills all its pupils. Uh, humanly speaking, it truly is a fact. We are born, we live, we learn, and then we die. The Bible says in Hebrews 9 that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. We will only have one life, and as one missionary wrote, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Yes, we read and understand that Christians who are saved by the blood of Christ can, with great expectation, look forward to the future glorification of the body and being in the heavenly presence of our Lord. For those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, the end of the earthly life is not the end of it all. Yet while we remain here, Christians only have one life on earth. The Apostle John's life was afflicted with trouble all the way. Towards the end of the first century AD, he was exiled to the prison island of Patmos by Domitian, then the emperor of Rome. During his rule, Domitian arrested, imprisoned, exiled, and executed many of his enemies, including noblemen, senators, and even his wife. Uh, this emperor also commanded the people of the empire to call him Dominos et Deus, Lord and God. Although he wasn't as brutal as Nero, Domitian presided over a period of great persecution against Christians because they declared that Jesus was Lord and God. These Christians had only one life, and they chose, it seemed, the path of greatest resistance and trouble for the cause of Christ. John, during this time, was an elder at the church at Ephesus, boldly contending for the faith and preaching the gospel 
made John a big target for the Roman Emperor. It wouldn't be the first time that a great revelation was given by God to those in captivity, in exile, or in isolation. Remember Ezekiel receiving his call by the banks of a foreign Babylonian town. What about Daniel, also in Babylon, and Paul in the Arabian deserts following his receiving of Jesus Christ as Saviour? It was here on this remote island of Patmos that John received the revelation of Jesus Christ to him and to the world of things to come. And because it came from God, we can be sure that it is 100% true and accurate. Let's open to Revelation chapter 1, and we'll read from verses 1 to 11. Reading from verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace, from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Amen. In verse 8, which is our focus this evening, Jesus introduces himself to the churches. You may have heard in the Greek alphabet, Alpha is the first letter, and Omega is the last letter, the beginning and the end. It's like saying A to Z in the English alphabet. Jesus is before all things and shall remain after or beyond all things. Hebrews 13.8 said it another way, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever. Isaiah 41 verse 4, Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, 
I the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. And Psalm 90, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. This has many implications for how we are to rely on Jesus. If he is both the beginning and the end, he has authority over time and all that happens over time. One of our Sunday school students recently praised God for being everlasting. They went on to say that if God wasn't everlasting, we wouldn't have a solid belief. God is dependable because he is the first and last. Well, what else is Jesus? We read in verse 8 that he is also the Almighty. This word is translated from the Greek word, which comes from two words, meaning everything and hold. The literal meaning can be translated as the one who holds everything. God, not earthly emperors, is almighty and rules over all. God has a plan for the world and he designs all to fulfill his divine purposes and the good of his people. And so, after Jesus Christ is introduced, we come to verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. It's evident that John was going through tribulation. Can we turn quickly to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 18. Speaking of suffering, Paul writes in verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The Holy Spirit shared this message with Paul. On the one hand, we have Christ in heaven. He is God, the first and last. He is the Almighty. On the other hand, we have John on Patmos. But John doesn't have to suffer on the Isle of Patmos in order to be an heir of God and fulfill that verse that we just read. That verse of scripture is fulfilled with Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now it's true, there are times that God's people will suffer. We don't have to look very far in our world to see that God's people suffer. But the sufferings of the present do not make one an heir of God. Our true suffering is in Christ. Receiving Christ as Lord and Saviour, we put on Christ and we put off the old man. We could suffer here to the world's end and not have Christ, and we won't have heaven. We could go through all kinds of hatred and persecution and not have Christ and face judgment before God. So, we want to be found there. We want to be found with Christ on the cross, with Christ in his burial with Christ as he sits at the right hand of the Father. 
Everything he endured while he was on this earth was to be our substitute. Our ongoing focus should be upon Christ and not suffering. If we return to Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, we're now told the circumstances that John is receiving this great revelation. We find that the Apostle John was on the Isle of Patmos. That word was can be translated became, which is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as there arose, or it came to pass, or it was fulfilled. I believe John was caused by God to understand why he was there on Patmos. Maybe he questioned his circumstance. Maybe it took some time for John to come to terms with his exile. We don't know. We're not told. But now God reveals to him this great revelation, and he's commanded to write it all down. What a blessing it would have been to have such an undertaking. Or the condemnation of the empire couldn't stand against such a message as this. John is on Patmos because he preached the word of God and stood firm as a witness for Jesus Christ. Against the emperor, John had not done anything unlawful. He simply proclaimed that Jesus is Lord and God, long before the current emperor. Patmos for John wasn't merely a place for punishment. Patmos was where John was persecuted for Christ's sake. It was punishment despite being innocent. I wonder what Patmos might look like for you and I. Maybe it's persecution too. Maybe it's when you stand for and stand by the word of God, where you have stood up for what is right, where you resist the decrees and principles of those in power when they're inconsistent with the Bible. Patmos begins when those closest to you mistreat and mock you because you have become a Christian or are attending or serving church. Patmos begins when you are fired from your job because you refuse to follow corrupt or unlawful practice. Patmos is when friends ridicule or abandon you because you refuse to partake in drinking vulgar language and the rebellious behaviours of life. Patmos is when your fellow classmates despise you because you still hold to the old-fashioned ideas of the Bible and going to church on Sundays. Patmos is the place of isolation, separation from people you care for, but in themselves don't care for you or Jesus. It's the island of life where there was a suspension of service that you devoted to give and the disruption for what you have been doing. Where God's enemies seem to have finally succeeded, and the future is more uncertain than ever. The emperor had finally gotten John where he wanted him, cut off from the Christians he served alongside. It's important to remember that Patmos for John did not automatically become a place and period of communion with the Lord. When similar circumstances happen in our lives, our first temptation is to focus on the people that did this to us and upon the injustice of such persecution. John could have demanded justice. So many could others before him. Paul in prison, Peter in prison, Joseph in prison, David on the run in the wilderness, Moses on the run in the desert, Job in grief and loss, Jonah in the depths of the ocean. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, John doesn't even mention the name of the emperor. It takes history to tell us who exiled John to Patmos. He doesn't express self-pity. 
He knew who was punishing him and he knew why. He simply states the reason and moves on in the following verses. Verse 10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. As he sought refuge in God, John was used of the spirit to witness and later to write these words that we see here preserved in scripture. And as John is caused to understand a bit of why he was on Patmos, the spirit comforts him. He's not here by mistake, he's here by divine appointment. When all is said and done, we are absolutely dependent on the Spirit of God, for it's the Spirit of God that leads us into truth. Men may show us, but it's the Spirit of God that convicts us through the Word of God. Can we please turn to Psalm 119? Psalm 119 verse 50. few verses here reminding us about the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. And going down to verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And verse 114, Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Yes, things didn't go to plan. We're certainly not told in the Bible to expect life to go like clockwork. English writer Gilbert Chesterton said that the only way of catching a train is to miss the train before. Obviously, Gilbert learnt from experience. But God's word tells us in James 4, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Remember that God holds the world in his hands. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Whatever happens day by day is never for the Christian without the bedrock, the foundations of Jesus Christ and his word and the Holy Spirit sent to dwell within us. John on Patmos found refuge in his God. Psalm 46 reminds us that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The psalmist encourages us to be still and know that he is God. God will be exalted among the heathen. God will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Yes, though time is a great teacher, and though time kills all its pupils, God is infinite. God can and God will prevail where we are utterly unable. It is God's work that we are doing, not, not, not our own work. And although we may not know the outcome when the wicked seem to be triumphant and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, God's people seek refuge in God, the Alpha and Omega, the author and finisher, the same yesterday, today and forever, world without end. To anyone who may be in such a situation as John, 
Resist the temptation to shake your fists at God and his enemies. Resist the temptation to engage in self-pity. Rather, make use of the circumstances and depend on God. Focus on Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. And take refuge in Christ. What does the Bible say when we are suffering severe persecution? Matthew 10.28 says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear not them. That's a hard truth to accept. I know a friend who professed to be a Christian many years ago. He's now nowhere near a church. He doesn't speak of God and he doesn't want anything to do with church. He said that he found out there's no way you can live the life that the church preaches. It's too hard. You've just got to go with the flow and with the world. No, you don't. You will take flack. You will take persecution. You will have enemies, but don't fear them. You'd better fear that which can destroy both soul and body in hell. That fear will cast out all fear of men. When I was studying at university, my very first major project brief was to design a rest stop along one of Sydney's many foreshores. Every student in the course was allocated their own one kilometre zone along Sydney Harbour, Middle Harbour, Parramatta River or Lane Cove River. The brief was simple. The rest stop must demonstrate two key concepts, refuge and prospect. If anyone walks to a park or any other open space, where is the best place to sit? Somewhere you can rest your back against and somewhere with a decent view. Refuge and prospect. Brethren, we must respond to Patmos in our lives by clinging to refuge in Christ and with and steadfastly looking out to our prospect in Christ. From the scriptures, we know this to be hope. With God, there is true, lasting, confident hope. John, he was now able to see a little bit of why he was there, and that was to receive this message written in the Revelation. This portion of scripture was a message to encourage churches right until this present day that God is on the throne and ruling over his creation for both his purposes and for the good of his people. God does all things well and he is king. That's the believer's hope. I once drove past a church with a banner saying, no God, no hope. No God, no hope with a K. For John, this revelation was also of great personal encouragement and blessing. He knew God through this revelation. God was revealing himself and his plans to this exiled servant. First, let's consider what hope is. From the English perspective, the word hope carries with it apprehension. But when the New Testament speaks of hope, it is a word full of assured confidence. There's no apprehension, there's no hesitation, there's no dilemma. The Christian must live in their one-time life on earth in hope. Often, we risk neglecting hope in our faith today. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11 that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
However, when it comes to hope, we must be careful that we don't create the expectation. Hope being the confident expectation of what God is going to do, that hope must rely on God's word, just like faith relies on God's word. We can't create expectations that we know God will do this. There are many things that we may hope for, but it might not be God's will for that expectation to become reality. We can hope to be healed. Within that hope, it can be a great expectation of absolute trust in God. He can do it. There's no question about that. But at the same time, we can't create the hope to be that God definitely will heal. Romans 7.24 O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is a question with hope. Sometimes we can ask a question, how will this happen? Yet we know very clearly in our heart that it is going to be done by God. In the very next verse, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. That becomes the great expectation. So we have faith that deliverance is found in Jesus, and we have hope that this is going to happen for me. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we're so sure we don't even need to say it. There's no hesitation. There's no wavering. If it be so, they said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. God is able. What is that? That's faith. But in the next verse, if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. These men knew that God could do it, but it may not be his will. Is that a rejection of hope? There is faith clearly evident, but now the future is unknown. They haven't been thrown in the furnace yet. This could go one way or another. God could deliver them. Or God may choose not to deliver them. It's not a matter of whether he can or he cannot. We are now contemplating hope. We have faith that he's able to do it. But if he chooses not to do it, we still won't bow down to the image. They dared not create the expectation that it would happen. When it comes to certain things that we pray for, we've got to have hope in that. It's those things that the Bible has told us he will do. That's where hope is found. But if it's not God's will to deliver us, then we know that he will be with us. That's a promise because it's declared, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. That's the reality of faith in hope. It's not whether it's God's will. That's why the canon of scripture concludes with this glorious revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope. The Bible has already told us it is his will, that he will be with us always. But there is a danger in creating our own hopeful expectations of God where he has not revealed his will to us. I believe that we can remain faithful but lose hope. And I don't want to be careless as I say this. If we may turn please to Job chapter 17. 
Job 17, starting verse 11. My days are past, my purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day, the light is short because of darkness. If I wait, the grave is mine house, I have made my bed in the darkness. I have said to corruption, thou art my father, to the worm, thou art my mother and my sister. And where is now my hope? Who shall see it? They shall go down to the bars of the pit when our rest together is in the dust. When we read this statement from Job, we must remember there was no more perfect man than Job. We must remember that this man eschewed evil, that this man walked before God. We must see that God himself commended Job, so we must conclude he was a man of faith. But was he a man of hope? If we believe that faith is for the present and hope is faith's posture in the future. There are moments in the book of Job that he has glimpses of hope. When he acknowledges that God knoweth the way he takes, when he is tried he shall come forth as gold. That is hope. That is confident expectation. That is what will happen in his life. But there are moments where he doesn't have hope. He never denies God, he never curses God, he never wanes in that reality that God exists. But his whole life was living in the context of faith. For his existence, for his home, for his family, for his possessions, all in faith. But now Job comes to a point where everything is taken from him. He doesn't blame this on Satan. After chapter 2, we don't hear about Satan. It's God. And Job. So Job's hope waxed and waned. But I do want to encourage all of us tonight, we must refuse to live without hope. In Luke chapter 2 verse 25, we read of Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, waiting. The meaning of this verse is that Simeon was looking for the comfort of Israel. It's not an apathetic waiting. He was looking for this consolation. He knew and believed that this was to come. Simeon lived in dark times, the lowest ebb of world history. 400 years had passed since the closing chapters of Malachi and the Old Testament. The Jews had their religion but they were deep in apostasy. The Romans had their Pax Romana, but this was a man-made peace that could only inspire fear and not true hope in the hearts of the empire. And when Simeon's hope was realized and when Jesus came to earth, he came at a time of hopelessness. Jesus wasn't placed in a perfect garden like Adam. Jesus wasn't born into a sinless environment like Adam. Jesus was plunged into the worst conditions of world history up until that point. And he would have to live this sinless life, this one-time life on earth. He would have to live it perfectly. But Jesus lived with prospect to fulfill his Father's will, to redeem the world from a lost and sin-bound condition. 
Jesus lived with perfect hope. So that is our perfect example. Do you know why so many Christians these days are consumed with cares of life, with the pursuit of possessions? It's because they don't think much of the kingdom for their life. Maybe they got discouraged. Maybe some things didn't work out. So what's the use? But further on in Luke chapter 2, in verse 32, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We must believe that it's the Father's good pleasure to give us not things, but the kingdom. It's God's good pleasure to give me the workings of grace, to sanctify my soul, to break the power and dominion of sin, to fill me with his spirit, to consecrate my life. It's the Father's good pleasure to give me the kingdom. Are you seeking a deeper life living in the kingdom? Just living. Don't look for anything big. Just live right. Live by faith in Christ. That's a mighty prospect and it is sufficient for us because it is God's good pleasure. We know some things are good for us, but there are some things that are so dark and dreadful, we wonder how in the world could God bring anything out of this? But give God time. All things, all circumstances, all events, all risings and fallings, all successes and poverties, they're all going to work together for good. So don't fear the dark side of providence. It's part of providence. God is better to us than all our fears. Sometimes our worst troubles are those that never come, but we're afraid they will. But fear not, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Let's come back to John on Patmos. John had hope because of the revelation that Jesus was giving to him. Firstly, Jesus Christ was among his churches and he knew their works. Many of the disciples had concerns about how the church would survive after they were gone. If they, who had lived and walked with Jesus himself, had so much difficulty in following his word, then how much more would people who never knew him? John 20, 24 to 29 illustrates the difficulty that Thomas had in believing that Jesus was resurrected. 1 Peter 1, 8 records something similar. Whom having not seen, ye love. If the disciples who were so close to Jesus had taken so long to fully believe and understand, how much more would believers who never knew Jesus on earth? That was John's concern. But this revelation taught John that the survival of the church did not depend on the past. Rather, it would be founded upon new Christians in personal communion with Jesus, the risen Lord and Saviour. Secondly, Jesus was at work among the churches. He knew what was going on. He had promised to establish his church and he declared that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Jesus would go on to encourage John to write these things in a book and send it to seven churches in Asia and to this very present day to Christians and churches thereafter. Jesus was showing John in an especially personal way that in the end, Jesus Christ is the Omega. Jesus Christ will be triumphant over all the world. Within about a year, the Emperor Domitian was dead and John was released from exile on Patmos. Today, we rejoice in having this precious book of Revelation. 
We thank God that John was exiled on Patmos and that what he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What about you and I? In what manner should we receive this revelation? Well, first of all, we must take refuge in God in our own life experience of Patmos. When it seems like we've done nothing but proclaim Christ and be kicked down for it, remember God, for if he is for us, who can be against us? Second, we must have hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Spurgeon said this, My hope lives not because I'm a sinner, not because I'm not a sinner, but because I'm a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I'm holy, but that being unholy, Christ is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in who Christ is, in what Christ has done, and in what Christ is now doing for me. The source of our hope is key. A sinner who knows that they are beloved of God and made a joint heir with Christ through his sacrifice on the cross is a person of hope. Hope indwells this person because the perfect sacrifice for all that afflicts them has become their righteousness. True hope isn't based on feelings. Instead, it's based on, as Spurgeon put it, who Christ is, in what Christ has done, and in what Christ is now doing for me. A secular writer, Bernard Shaw, said that there are two tragedies in life. One is not to get your heart's desire, and the other is to get it. But he was talking about the desires of the heart of the natural man, who knows not God nor Christ, and whose life only ends in death. He speaks truly when he says that when such a man has got his heart's desire, he finds it only a disappointment, empty and unsatisfying. Third, we must remember eternity, the omega after our earthly life is done. Spurgeon reminded Christians, time is short, eternity is long. It's only reasonable that this short life be lived in the light of eternity. These words remain true as ever for Christians today. Taking reality checks by considering eternity helps us reset our focus to things that truly matter. Remembering how brief life is also helps us appreciate the value of the days we're given. The Bible teaches that. Even the psalmists took such reality checks. Moses prayed in Psalm 90, Teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Not only can we be comforted by God's sovereignty in things present and things to come, we should also be motivated to be used of God here with the time we have. I'll close now by reading a few stanzas from the pioneer missionary Charles Studd's poem. Two little lines I heard one day, travelling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done, then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave, and to God's holy will to cleave. 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears. Each with its days I must fulfil, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, we pray that you would incline our ears to hear your voice. The scriptures are clear and plain. We thank you, Lord, for the book of the Revelation. We thank you, Lord, for John on that Isle of Patmos. Lord, we pray that you would bless this church tonight. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to look to thee, to Christ, to Emmanuel, God with us. He is our refuge and strength. He is our prospect and hope. And Lord, may we be found seeking refuge in Christ. May we be found hoping in Christ. Lord, may thy voice be the first and the last for all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.